Hey guys, Blaine from DTC Pod here, and I've got something you're gonna like. So if you're anything like us, bringing highly talented VAs or virtual assistants into your operations and workflows is a big part of running a business. Uh, but oftentimes the hardest part is sourcing and vetting talent, especially at an affordable rate. And that's where more now comes in. They source and match you with top talent from the Philippines across finance, supply chain, operations, marketing, and whatever else you may need. And the best part is they're super cost-effective and back their talent with a 12-month guarantee. So go to morenow.co or check the link I'm dropping in the show notes to learn more about more now and start offloading some of the most tedious tasks off your plate. We've had a bunch of success working with them and their VAs in our workflows, so excited for you guys to check them out. So before we kick off today's recording, I've got one more for you. Keeping up your momentum this year starts with the right selling tools. And if you're looking to increase revenue, grow faster, build more pipeline, and close more deals, check out the all-new sales hub from HubSpot. You'll be able to manage your whole sales process, plus my favorite part, the reporting. It's super intuitive, powerful, and customizable. Plus, the whole thing is powered by AI, so your teams can spend less time on tedious, time-consuming stuff and more time on developing relationships. Also, no one likes a clunky platform that takes months to onboard onto, but getting set up on Sales Hub is really quick and easy. It's free to get started, the pricing will scale with your business, and with more than 1,300 integrations and add-ons, you can tune it to your exact needs. Visit hubspot.com sales to start selling with Sales Hub. What's up, DTC Pod? Today, we're joined by John Coogan, who is the co-founder of Soylent, the co-founder of Lucy, and more recently, he is an EAR, EIR at Founders Fund, as well as a big creator on YouTube and all the other platforms. So we're really excited for this conversation today. John, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, how you got started maybe with Soylent? Was that your first business? How did, how did things start for you? Yeah, sure. I grew up in Pasadena, California, basically right outside Los Angeles. Um, went to a school right next to Caltech that was very focused on STEM and science technology. So I was always interested in tech. You know, some people try and call Pasadena Nasadina because NASA's there. Never really caught on as a nickname, but, you know, culturally, it's a very techy city. Uh, and so I went to college, studied economics, eventually learned to code, was doing some internships at some finance firms, uh, Citadel, Bain Capital, a couple small uh, venture shops and saw that basically like the less employees at the company, the better I did. And the bigger the company, the more painful it was. And so eventually I said, okay, I, I got to just start something And the, the summer after college was like the perfect time for it. Um, and so I grabbed a friend from high school, went out to Silicon Valley. We eventually got accepted to, uh, essentially Y Combinator. It was a spinoff run by some of the Y Combinator folks and then they merged it in, but now it's Y Combinator. Um, and basically, if, if, you're, if your audience doesn't know about Y Combinator, it's a kind of a startup school, three months, you sprint as hard as you can to build a business, show some growth, and then at the end of the program, you pitch it to investors. And there's a big room of investors. So we go through that program. We utterly flop. Everything we build sucks. And I was learning to code. I was getting really, really great at it. And, it, and we were putting apps in the store. We were actually learning how to produce products but we didn't know distribution, didn't know marketing. So we would kind of just build something and then it would be a dead end. Um, but we had wound up living with another team that was in Y Combinator. And this this team was building kind of hard tech, wireless networking stuff, a bunch of Georgia Tech guys. And um, they also ran into the same problem. They pitched, no one wanted the deal, no one liked it. Eventually the idea was pretty reasonable and I think someone wound up doing it, but. Uh, it wasn't the right team, like, you know, building cell phone towers, essentially, as new grads, no one really trusted you, like, you would require a lot of money. So, uh, so both companies have kind of flopped at this point, and we're running out of money. But we know, you know, just build something people want, make something that you like, you know, just start building for fun, instead of really overthinking, like, we need to build something that will make money. And we noticed that, you know, we, we just want to spend all day coding, building things, and we had some money in the bank from the initial Y Combinator investment. We'd put everyone together into this tiny, you know, disgusting apartment in the Tenderloin in San Francisco. It was a complete mess. I was actually living in the living room. One of my co-founders was technically living in a closet because it didn't have a window. And it was just like pretty destitute, but we really enjoyed it because we just wake up every day and program and 
try and build that's businesses. the motivation just to get out of that rut yeah it was it was definitely motivation to get out of it but honestly it was like a really enjoyable time <laughs> and i think like it, it was it was it was very satisfying in terms of like the work like you wake up you don't have a boss you don't have any external stresses there's nothing on your calendar you just have you know as many hours a week to do whatever you want you can you can go off and read a book learn a new topic in a day and it's just like it was fantastic we just wanted to extend that and we figured that if we extended that eventually we would build something great build the next great app or something uh and in and and as we noticed that okay we paid our rent a year in advance we owned our laptops we paid for internet we didn't really have any costs other than food and so my co-founder decided that if he just bought all the raw ingredients to the ultimate meal replacement protein shake mix those up himself that would be the cheaper than any of the other alternatives so in san francisco you know you basically always have to make a trade-off foods typically either healthy convenient or affordable and you can usually choose two so like healthy and convenient but not affordable is like going to a nice restaurant the chef cooks for you it's super healthy you don't have to do the dishes it's great but it's expensive then healthy and affordable but not convenient is like growing your own food, cooking for yourself, very time consuming, but it is pretty cheap and it is definitely healthy. And then unhealthy, but convenient and affordable is like fast food. So you walk in, they give you the food really quickly. It's not healthy, but it is cheap. And so we were really stuck between all of these and we were like, how can we get something that's healthy, convenient and affordable? We were like, let's just eat the most protein shakes as possible, basically. And just distill the what the body needs down to exactly what your requirements are. You need this many carbs. You need this much fat. So start mixing up the powders, making this protein shake. And Rob, my co-founder, the CEO, writes a blog post about it. And he is incredible at content marketing. And he's a very, very creative writer. Uh, he writes, he reads a lot of science fiction. He writes in this very trollish manner where you don't know if he's joking or not and he rides this edge where you don't know so people read in the, is this is this satire we don't know it feels like it but maybe so it does very very well it's very entertaining to read and so he writes this blog post called uh how i stopped eating for 30 days or something like that i, I stopped eating for 30 days and that sounds insane that 30 day fast no food sounds aggressive like what happened and of course he was like having these protein shakes which you drink them, but you're kind of eating. You're definitely getting calories. He's getting like 2000 calories a day. And then he goes into like the health and says that he got a lot healthier. And so it's like the classic body transformation uh, story that launches so many of these like fitness and health and uh, nutritional products. But it's told through the lens of like a Silicon Valley programmer. And so no one had come to the Silicon Valley programmer archetype with a protein shake, with a nutritional product before. People had done this exact same thing for cyclists and bodybuilders and Olympic weightlifters and football players and boxers. Like there had been a story about, you know, oh, do you want to, you know, you know, be like Mike Tyson, like get on his protein powder. Like these, these stories are dime a dozen, but no one had done that for like, do you want to program more? It was a very weird, like uh, just odd thing. So the uh, Paul Graham at Y Combinator, the head of Y Combinator, he says like, he calls it like the biggest pivot in YC history because they pivoted from a, like we pivoted from a wireless networking company that was going to build like 5G towers into a, uh, into a protein shake company. It's like completely opposite. But like we had to because the response was overwhelming. Like Rob put up that blog post and 10,000 people signed up gave their email to us and answered like a multi multi-page form explaining what their health goals were, what they want, how much they'd pay. We even asked them like, Hey, like, you know, what if we could customize this for you? Would you send us your DNA from 23andMe? And people were like, yeah, like 93% of people said, yeah, we would send you. That's how crazy people were about like the idea. They wanted something because it was just a, it was just a very, very small market that was completely unspoken to like no one was selling health products to programmers. And so, um, uh, people, people said that they would send in their blood work and stuff. It was like crazy. People were asking like, Hey, I'm going to burning man. Like if you can come to Oakland to give me some, like, I'll pay you cash. Like and Rob was like riding out on the subway to go deliver this, like a drug dealer. It was crazy. Um, the demand was just like over overwhelming. And so it was very obvious that like, this was going to make money. This was going to be a business. Um, and as soon as he told me that he wanted to call it Soylent, I was like, 
before I was like, why are you doing this? Like we don't, it, health doesn't really health, like nutrition doesn't really matter if you're a 21 year old programmer, like just wake up and code. All that matters is like your product. Um, that's obviously wrong, but regardless, um, I thought it was like a silly project. I thought it was like too far of a side project. Um, but once he told me the name and he said, I'm calling it Soylent, I, I knew about the movie. So the, in the movie, Soylent is based on this movie, Soylent Green. And it's this dystopian sci-fi future where there's this food called Soylent Green. And it's revealed at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, that the, uh, that the food is made of people. And so it's this like really dark cannibalism joke. And so I was like, this is, this is, this is going to catch fire because it's going to be so controversial to name a food product after like a cannibalism joke, essentially. And, and also like this weird sci-fi reference. So, you know, old programmers who have seen this 1970s movie will love it and they'll get the joke. And then there's actually a book. So there's like lore around the brand, like immediately. And, um, I was like, yeah, we, okay, we need to sell this. Like the name, the name like makes a ton of sense. So we put up a website and in the first hour we make like $200,000. It was like crazy. And we were just like, sure. let's go to the Apple store and buy better computers. <laughs> what was, what was the reaction from the VCs in like the SF area at that time, whenever you would tell them like, what was, why was this something? Well, it was, it was arguably like, like better from Silicon Valley VCs than from traditional food and beverage investors, because the VCs were seeing it on Twitter and seeing it on Hacker News and TechCrunch. Like our our marketing was tailored at tech people, so VCs saw that. Like there was a lot of soil in a lot of different VC offices. There were programmers on the at, at the different companies that they were funding were using it. So imagine you're a VC and you go to visit like your best company. You open up the fridge in the in the office before your board meeting and you see a soylent there like it's in your brain whereas if you're some legendary food and bev in, uh, investor and you're going over to like the 7-eleven headquarters and you open up the fridge there like it's not going to be there so we were like disproportionately like low in attention from like traditional food and bev but uh, but punching like way above our weight in terms of like tech so when you guys got those $200,000 in sales, um, what was the conversation right after when you guys gathered and assuming that, you know, the, the topic is now, how are we going to supply this? How are we going to scale this? Yeah. So we'd, we'd talk to, um, let me just, I, I, do you like the granularity? Is it helpful if I tell, tell it in yes, really, really deep detail? Definitely. Okay. So, yes. uh, I mean, it, it, it's interesting to me. So basically, um, there were there were four co-founders. Um, one is my current co-founder, David Rentelm of Lucy. And was, so we continued on. But um, he had a little brother who went to USC and was in a fraternity with the son of the guy who was the CEO of Muscle Milk, I think. Or maybe he was like the president. He was like running that company high up, head honcho guy. And so we used that connection to get a call with him and just be like, hey, like we got a problem. Like 10,000 people want us to produce a protein shake and we have no experience here. It'd be one thing if it was like writing some code and dropping it on AWS. Like we kind of, that's what we've been practicing for the last year. Like put, a, put an app in the app store. Uh, this is not that. We need a huge machine. Um, we need a V blender. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen a V blender, but it's this, it blends up the powders. You put all the powder in it and it just splits it half and half again and again and again. And we walked into this room and it was like the size of the room, like multiple stories, huge, um, mixing up like 10,000 pounds of protein powder. It's crazy. Um, so we call him and we're like, hey, we need, we need a manufacturer for this. Like we're not going to be able to make this in our garage. Like this is impossible. We had a little like R&D facility where we would go and like kind of mix it up for ourselves because we were making it in our apartment. Basically like, like my bed, my, my, my bed, like neck turned into like a table where we were making this pow these powders and like testing it on ourselves. Um, and we, uh, so, so, so we call him and eventually like we brought him on as an advisor. He introduced us to another guy. I think David Ackerman's the guy's name. He had been maybe working with him and had a lot of experience in the industry. And he put us in touch with a, uh, with a, co-packer manufacturer which we didn't even know like what that was but co-packer i mean i'm sure your audience knows what that is um but they were you know so we go out i think we were in modesto kind of like you know an hour or two outside of san francisco um i don't know if that's right but like you know we're we're, we're kind of out in the middle of california 
and we toured this facility. We're like, great. And then we made like one fatal error, I think. I mean, there's probably other ways to handle this negotiation, but you know, we're like, hey, we, you know, we have $200,000. I think it actually went up to like 3 million pretty quickly. We were like, we basically have $3 million of, of revenue that we need to deliver on. We need to, we, we have $3 million in sales. This is like, I don't know, 50,000 units of the stuff, or I, I don't exactly know uh, what the, what the average ticket was, but you know, we got a lot of product that we need to make and then ship to our customers. Can you make it for this? And they're like, absolutely. It'll cost $2.9 million to do that because like, we just want all your money. <laughs> and we're, and it was because we'd like exposed our pricing beforehand, as opposed to like going, asking them like, okay, we need to drive down the price. We need to talk to 10 different co-packers. We need to get the lowest possible price, lock it in. And then at the last minute, tell them, and it's at, we're actually selling it for $10. So, you know, that would have been a much more effective negotiation strategy, but that's not what happened. We came in, they could look at the website, see exactly how much we were charging and they, you know, charge us an arm and a leg. So our motors were very, very bad for the first run, but it didn't really matter because we kind of knew that people were going to be subscribing people. We were going to be able to scale up. We'd eventually be able to go to bigger, uh, to bigger co-packers. So we weren't super locked in, but it was just kind of like a silly, like, you know, mistake at the early stage, like kind of rookie, rookie mistake. Yeah, but I think it's so important at that stage, like you were saying, you have the demand, you have to fulfill on it and you have to like see like, okay, let's deliver on our product and let's see where that takes us, right? Like after the first production run. So like you had to do it. You couldn't just be like, oh, we're going to take a, a year negotiating our, our best rates while customers are still waiting and you're trying to capture that lightning in the bottle, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, we tried to go on Kickstarter and they denied us because Kickstarter wasn't doing food products at the time. Hilariously, years later, someone goes on Kickstarter and starts a a Soylent Brownies project where they're making brownies with our product as an ingredient and they got approved by Kickstarter. It was very weird. But um, so we so we wound up going with a different platform that we knew from Y Combinator called CrowdTilt that I don't think they're really around anymore. Um, James Bashara was running the company though. You might know him from Magic Mind. Uh, he'd be a good guest on D2C uh, since that's his wheelhouse now. But we were like, we were on this like kind of, I mean, I don't want to disparage them, but it was like kind of janky. Like they, they kind of like just, they built it basically for us. We were like, just like really by the seat of our pants, like getting this going. It wasn't very established and a ton of Kickstarters had failed. Like there had been a ton of Kickstarters that had not gotten over the finish line or like never delivered. People kind of lost their money. And it was, Kickstarter used to be, the brand was like, if you put your money down, you are going to get that product. It just going, it's just going to be a year or two and you're putting the money up front. But all of a sudden for like right around 2012, 2013, it started flipping to like, you might not get this at all. Like it's too risky because people were doing like crazy, like, you know, oh, it's like a flying car on Kickstarter. <laughs> and it's like, that might not ever happen. Um, but we, yeah, we delivered in a year and it was painful. Like every day we were, I think we pushed, we, we said we were going to deliver in three months. We pushed that delivery date back like a ton. There were tons and tons of like just customer support tickets, um, just like tens of thousands of people emailing us constantly. And then the problem was like during this time, we were doing a ton of press because that ori original viral story, like if you've been following Brian Johnson with like the man who spent $2 million to live forever, uh, we, we had that same kind of like viral moment where Rob was like the guy who doesn't eat food. And like, that's weird. And so everyone wants to point a camera in his face. And then he was also just like this weird sci-fi guy, really interesting, could like just talk for hours in all these different directions and all these different places and just be a really far futurist in terms of like where things go. Like, oh yes, like we'll definitely have like a pill that you'll take and you'll never need to eat again. Like just like crazy sci-fi concepts and just like very entertaining. So great for earned media. And so I remember like one night, like I woke up and there was like a discovery news, like camera in my face being like, this is the guy who sleeps next to the guy who doesn't eat food. You know? <laughs> I'm like, okay, like turn the lights off. Like I'm trying to sleep. I've been up until like three in morning coding. Oh man. Um, and, and like Rob was doing like BBC hits in the middle of the night. He got invited on Steve Harvey, which I thought it would have been awesome. And they were going to do, yeah, like they, they wanted to make it like, uh, like, you know, the jeans, like, like, oh, look at, look at how much weight I lost. And he was like, I didn't really lose that much weight. Like, that's not really like a weight loss program. Like, it's more just to like, let you code more. Like, um, but I was like, dude, we, we should do it. Like, go have fun on Steve Harvey. That would have been fantastic. Um, 
but but eventually like it started getting very very serious like uh the new yorker wrote a cover story about it like a super super long profile on on the company and and this reporter came out and embedded with us for like days and days and days and was like at our facility she came to our house and we had like we were doing these like like science discussions sessions i forget what journal clubs where we'd read like different scientific literature with some scientists from the caltech community and um and she was just like participating in all aspects of the business um wrote this really really interesting profile it wasn't it, it was like you you can read it and be like oh this is kind of trash talking us because we're like rookies which we are and like silly and kind of like talking too much about the future but it wasn't super negative and it wasn't it wasn't also glowing it was just that perfect balance where we were kind of getting made fun of but for good reasons so you don't like fault her um so it turned out phenomenally and sold a million dollars of product in a day it was like the best thing ever and then uh and then we had some like hit pieces but even the hit pieces would uh like i think we when we were launching we had some like press that we were embargoing and we were deciding we'll either go with the new yorker or the new york times like for the big announcement um we'll do like a really deep dive with one of them and only one of them like we they, it's one or the other um and we went with the new yorker and so the, the new york times was kind of like upset with us and so they wrote like kind of a negative thing but even that drove like a hundred thousand dollars in sales it was great like even though it was like this thing's stupid it sucks because people were like i want to see how much it sucks <laughs> i'll be the judge of that so, new so, york times it's so so yeah i remember i bought it long time ago um and my parents were like you have a problem yeah, yeah, um, for sure. so I, I totally see that. So you guys scale fast forward. You guys scale to having million dollar days. Yeah. Scale to you know high eight nine figures. Yeah. Um, but like with no experience, no prior experience in DTC, I assume you guys must have, you know, passive moments of like near death moments of the business. Um, throughout that scaling, or was it just so fast that, um, there actually there wasn't even I mean, time. So to there were definitely like huge oh shit moments. I, I'm trying to think if there were true like moments close to death, like, like the real, the real moment close to death was like before we started the company because we had like 50 K in the bank and it was just dwindling down. And there were three guys trying to build a business off of that. And it was just getting less and less and less. And, and now, you know, you talk to seed stage founders who are on their first company and they're like, Oh, I got 500 K in the bank. It's, it's really tough. Cause I'm burning hundred K a month. It's like, we were burning like 2K a month between three people, like including food and rent. It was like crazy. Um, but like that was going to run out and we were like failures and we'd really burn the ships. It wasn't like there were going to be jobs waiting for us at Google. So we were like, and also like co-founders were leaving. There was originally six people. Maybe at Muscle Milk, and we there was going to be a few jobs. Yeah, yeah, maybe, but we didn't, but we, <laughs> yeah. this was before that. So we didn't even have experience there. So we just had like no experience. It would have been very bad. So something had to work. Um, while we were actually scaling the business, I mean, there were definitely like, oh shit moments. Like one was Vice News came out and did a documentary about the company. It's like a 30 minute video all about like us. We walk around this farmer's market. We talk about food. We talk about the business. They go to one of our R&D facilities where we're kind of making it for ourselves and like friends, just small batches. And while they're there, they get on camera a rat running through the warehouse, which is like the worst press you can possibly get if you're a food company. But we weren't actually making customers products there. We were just making it for ourselves. And also we were living there. <laughs> so it was like, it was like just it was we we went beyond like it being bad to just being like it's weird. And I think that was kind of okay. And there was so much going on in the press that like the bad stuff didn't overwhelm. It wasn't like we were like some silent company and then all of a sudden there's a firestorm of negativity. It was like Every day there is there are three interesting positive pieces like Tim Ferriss writes about it and then Vice News says something bad about it and then Vice News says something good about it because there's more news and it was just something that was constantly in the media. And so we had tons of like setbacks. There were problems with like different formulations like one. What, what, I, I forget one thing about like heavy metals in a, in a certain ingredient that we had to pull out and then there was another one with uh, an algae that we were using that we, people were intolerant of. So uh, it was like a lactose intolerance response, but people don't know if they're intolerant to algae. They know if they're lactose intolerant. And so people were having like, just like there was a 1% chance that you just have a really bad reaction and be like, maybe throw up. Um, it wasn't like super dangerous or anything, but it was like not good for a food company. <laughs> um, 
and it was just something that was you know not that that was that was a pretty interesting story because the 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 company that was supplying us was like this this company called Solazyme. They were like a they were like a clean tech company that wanted to do like algae biofuels where they would like make the algae and then use that to like power cars or something like that. I guess that was like the long-term goal, but that wasn't working. So they pivoted to being like, we'll sell algae and you'll eat it as food, which is not, not bad. Like algal, algal protein is fine. Like it has good amino acids. Um, but there's a certain amount of people that are intolerant to it. So they'll have a lactose intolerance type of response, which is not good. Um, basically you have to go to the bathroom. Um, and, uh, and like, so they sold us this, they didn't disclose this. We wind up going to the, we, we wind up selling it to people. There was another company that was selling it as well. Honey stinger, this, like, uh, this, uh, like packet for bikers was using it like cyclists. Um, and, and, and they find out that it's bad too. And so we're both like, okay, well, it's not us that's responsible necessarily because, if this random cycling company is also having the same problem, it's clearly not us. It's something upstream in the supply chain in the ingredients. And so we go back and we're like, it's you guys, like you, like we, we're not going to like sue you. We just want like an apology and like make it clear for our customers that we're going to fix this and they'll be happy and they'll figure it out. And so we did, but it was crazy because we were like 23 years old and like the stock of this public company was like moving based on our board meeting. Like, we walked out of our board meeting, we made a decision. We we're like, okay, we're going to like, you know, put the screws to these guys and kind of like make them admit that they fucked up. And like, we see, oh, we knocked like a hundred million dollars off their market cap with that decision. It was like crazy. It was like Wolf of Wall Street type shit. I was like, I was like wow, this is wild. That's so wild. I mean, I bet there's so many stories of, of Soylent, but I'm also really interested about your new company, yeah. um, Lucy. And you know, you mentioned you have an economics background. You grew up in in the tech community, but you decide to do another DTC yeah. brand. And so, um, definitely want to want the audience to get an understanding of what Lucy is. But I'm also curious why DTC again. Yeah. So DTC is a is a very. I mean, I don't even know if DTC is like the right word anymore because DTC as a strategy might be basically dead post. ATT with Apple. And CPG. Yeah, CPG yeah. really is like the genre yeah. that you should think about. It's like, what, what's the product you're making? What problem does it solve? It's food or drink or beverage or nutritional supplements. And then, you, you know, you might set up a Shopify store and run some Instagram ads as your first go-to-market energy, like effort. But pretty quickly, you're going to be doing retail and then you're not really a DTC company. Uh, there was a DTC boom. Like you're 100% right that there's like a DTC thing that happened. Um, now like omni-channel from day one is definitely like the meme. Um, but we, we wanted to do another packaged goods company because we'd seen a lot of the problems in the business at Soylent, uh, high churn, um, very expensive to ship, like shipping, um, water <laughs> effectively is extremely expensive. Like a box of Soylent was probably like 10 pounds cost us like $10 to ship. And we were trying to be really cheap. It was trying to be like a $30 box and 10% and so like 30% of your margin is shipping which is just crazy not not as much of a problem if you're doing retail but we were still figuring out retail and we were like okay we still haven't figured out retail we don't have a retail hack we don't have like something that can really accelerate us there we don't have a we don't have an unfair advantage in retail um so what are the problems well focusing on something that's light so if you think about like a box of lucy this is like the nicotine gum uh this is like this is probably like 30 or 40 dollars worth of stuff uh of like goods but it weighs like you know like not probably less than a pound so it costs like nothing to ship um and so much more of the margin can be taken up by the actual product and you can actually compete with other brands much more effectively uh and and in, and in many cases our products are cheaper than our competitors in retail which is great and that's not true for protein shakes like protein shakes might be more expensive uh, and and that's why in DTC, like the look at the recent winners, like the Athletic Greens, the LMNT, the hydration, uh, the other hydration packs. They're stick packs with powders. You pay forty dollars for a stand up gusseted bag that has you know fifty little powder sticks in it. It weighs nothing. Now imagine if you know LMNT was like, we're going to ship you two gallons of this stuff. It's like okay, their margin's gone. So 
So solving for that was one thing. And then the other one was like defensibility. Like we had this idea at Soylent that like, oh, this is just like a cool idea. We want a cool community. Like if you want to start something that's similar, like we'll support that. And that was like really stupid. Um, so we had tons of copycats, people that would just like clone the business. We wouldn't defend it. We should have been suing people. We should have had more intellectual property. But in like in software, you don't need as much, you don't need to be as hard nosed about this stuff often because there's more lock-in, there's more like, you know, you could create a clone of Facebook today. Like cloning the software is not what makes that sticky. It's the network, right? But that's not the case for food products. Like if 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 you clone, you know, our um, our protein shake formula, make it a little bit better, a little bit cheaper or something like you'll just win often until you have like a really, really established brand. Obviously, like people still buy Coca-Cola, even though there's a store brand, but that took a hundred years. <laughs> we were not there. So we get, we, we get copied left and right. There's so many copycats, people literally just taking like the name and changing one letter. Like there was a Zoyland, a Joyland, like <laughs> all these different ones. And then there were some other ones that were a little bit more mature about them, but they were making real money and taking real, real market share from us. So we were like, okay, let's not make that mistake again. Let's go into an industry that is, that has some sort of intellectual property regulatory barrier. And that's how we came across the tobacco industry and, and nicotine specifically, because uh, nicotine was going through a change where it was previously basically unregulated by the, by the FDA. So you could just, just like w when you make a food product, you can just go and mix up a bunch of ingredients. As long as they're all generally recognized as safe, you can go and sell that product. But if you want to make a new weight loss drug like Ozempic, you're going to have to go through tons of FDA approvals to, and do trials with real people, take blood tests, monitor them for you know years. It's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars to get those big blockbuster drugs approved, like cancer drugs, et cetera. Nicotine was moving from like the unregulated, just mix it up and sell it to closer to biotech, like we need to review everything. And so we recognized that this was like the, the train was leaving the station and the last year to start a company in this space was 2016. And so we start thinking about it, formulating it. We, we, we do some small launches and then um, really start doubling down on the business in like 2017, 2018. Um, and then have just been growing it ever since. And, um, and it's great because now it would be super obvious, especially with what's happened with like Zen. It's like a total meme all over Instagram. Like it's clearly a category that's growing, 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 but this isn't going to become like some trendy thing where like every MBA, you know, leaves and starts like a new hip, like pouch brand. Like it's just not possible. It would cost them millions of dollars and take multiple years to get up and running because of the FDA process. And so having a barrier to entry was really, really key. So for, for context for the audience, what is Zen? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. What is Lucy? So Lucy is a, uh, a nicotine products company. We started the company because my co-founder was, was smoking. And his wife uh, works in medicine and said, look, like if we're going to get married, you can't smoke. Like you have to stop smoking. Um, he was like, come on. I, I smoke like a, a few cigarettes when I'm out with my buddies. Like I go out and, and it's only, I'm only a social smoker. And she's like, yeah, but you're out with your buddies every single night. <laughs> and so, so he's like, yeah, okay, I get it. Like I've seen the data. The data is really bad. Like even if you're smoking, like like, you know, a few cigarettes a day, like it can definitely cause lung cancer. This is well understood. So he's like, I want to stop smoking, but I like nicotine. Like I like the stimulation effects like nicotine. It's, it's, it's similar to caffeine in some ways. It has a shorter half-life. So kind of gets in and out of your system for certain people. It's just like an enjoyable thing. That's why people smoke in the first place. If you ask someone like, why do people smoke? They'll say, oh, cause they're addicted. And that's true. It is a very addictive product. Um, or they'll say like, oh, because it's cool. And it's like, yeah, but how did it get cool? Like, well, the reason is that nicotine is a stimulant. And so it makes you more alert, makes you less sleepy. Like these are things that people like. So, so he's like, I want to stop smoking, but I want to keep using nicotine. I know that nicotine's safe because there's all this study. There's all these studies on nicotine gums and lozenges and all the FDA approved stuff like Nicorette is not killing people. So we should make something like Nicorette. And so we make the, the first product we come to market with is like a direct Nicorette competitor. It's regulated as a tobacco product instead of a FDA drug, which is kind of like a complex FDA uh, regulatory thing. But 
um, that's what that's what this product, this nicotine gum. So, uh, so we come to market with this nicotine gum. We're selling it online, and we're kind of in this unique space where there there are no D two C companies in the category. Even Nicorette's not really. They kind of sell on Amazon. There's some generic stuff, and um, and the product hadn't really changed in like 40, 50 years because of the FDA regulation. It's very very expensive to to release a new a new product, and so. We, we start growing the product, kind of running like the default D2C playbook. Um, and then, and then uh, 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 like, you know, the, the second product we launch is a lozenge that's actually is FDA approved for smoking cessation, which means that we can come to the customer and say, look, if you're trying to quit smoking, we can tell you that this has been studied by the FDA specifically for, specifically for quitting smoking, which is great because certain people need that like quick claim marketed to them. This, we can just say, hey, look, it's, it's, enjoyable it tastes good it has nicotine we can just kind of make like standard claims about it um it's very much like in the you know supplement space i'm sure you've seen like there's certain things you can say there's certain things you can't and so uh yeah yeah that and then and then we expand into pouches um which are kind of like the latest you know innovation in the category um and these are uh they they still deliver nicotine they don't contain tobacco and they you know are growing in popularity. We are really excited to announce that DTC Pod is officially part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network is the audio destination for business professionals, and we're really excited about being part of the network because we're going to be able to keep growing the show, bringing you guys amazing guests, and obviously helping you guys learn from the best founders, marketers, and builders of the most successful consumer brands. So, Anyway, keep listening to DTC Pod and more shows like us on the HubSpot Podcast Network at hubspot.com slash podcast network. John, the question I had is after you got everything set up, I know you said there were some like regulatory things changing around 2016. You got the company set up, but today, are there different regulations you guys have to navigate in terms of like selling to different states? I know that's the case like with alcohol and stuff like that. Or is it once you guys are set up and you're past all your regulatory stuff, you can kind of you know, sell, ship, do, yeah. do whatever. So there are state by state regulations for, uh, nicotine products, tobacco products, and all of these things are defined in different ways. Um, certain, certain products might be categorized in a different way on the state by state basis. It's usually just, you either can sell it or you can't. So for example, like you cannot sell flavored vape products in San Francisco. That's just something that's been banned. So there's no amount of like regulatory work that you need to do. You just need to make sure that your products aren't sold there. Um, in terms of most states, it's just a tax factor. Like you get taxed obviously much less in Virginia where all the tobacco companies are than in New York and Los Angeles. And that's why when you walk into, you know, a bodega in New York, you spend $10 on a pack of cigarettes. Um, now the main, when we say regulatory, we're, we're talking about federal regulatory, like the United States government, the federal drug enforcement agency, the FDA, uh, not the DEA, sorry. Uh, but yeah, the, the Food and Drug Administration, FDA. And so um, we so we are responsible to them. So all of our products have, we've submitted like these massive PMTA applications, which are the pre-market tobacco application. Tell them everything that's in the product, where it comes from, what happens when someone uses it. Uh, you know, we show the products to people see how that affects them. They look at all of our data or revenues, like everything. And then they make a determination on whether or not this is suitable for the protection of public health, which means that th th this is not the case in supplements. Like if I'm selling a protein shake, the FDA does not say like, does it get you jacked? <laughs> like, they, like the FDA just says like, is it, is it safe to consume these ingredients? And then you mix them together and you're good. People like it, that's fine. But for this stuff, it's like it needs to be suitable for the protection of public health. And that means that it can't be worse than cigarettes. They need to look at, you know, addiction and, and uh, gateway drugs like that effect. Like if you start on the gum, would you switch to cigarettes? Like and so they look at all this data and they make a determination on whether or not releasing this product or keeping it on the market will improve the public's health or make it worse. And so with with Juul recently, I mean, that was like the most hotly debated company and hotly debated topic. The FDA, you might've seen they ruled against them. They basically said like, 
the FDA, the FDA said that Juul is not suitable for the protection of public health. Like it's making the public less healthy. Um, but Juul fought back and got an injunction and is fighting it back and has just raised some more money. And so there's, there's all these different things going on. Um, and, and we'll kind of see it, it's kind of depends on your scientific opinion, um, on, on a lot of these, but we felt at least that we had a really, really good shot at convincing the FDA that having more smokers switch to nicotine gum would be suitable for the protection of public health. And so we said, we can make that case to the FDA. And then if the FDA approves us, we will be one of the only companies that can really sell a new and innovative nicotine gum, nicotine pouch, et cetera. Gotcha. Um, no, it's super interesting. I think one of the most interesting things is just the space that you guys are operating in. Yeah. Like if you're, if you're looking at the trends, right? Like before smoking was like absolutely massive. There's probably a lot less smoking in the U.S. now. But like you were saying, the the rise of things like Juul and the puff bars, it's like if you go out in any city, it's like every teenager is like puffing on these things nonstop. So how do you see your product? Well, first, why don't you walk? I think you alluded it to it before, but tell me about your product suites, what you guys like actually offer at Lucy and then how those products kind of like fit into this larger ecosystem of like, you know, the smoking products, which are like traditional tobacco, cigarettes, cigars, that sort of stuff. And then like the vaping products, which you're seeing sold in all these. Yeah. Yeah. These smoke so, shops. so the, the, like the bread and butter of the business for the first couple of years was the nicotine gum. Um, what's, what special, what differentiates us from other products is flavor and strength. So most, most nicotine gums are not very flavorful. They're kind of hard. I'm not a big fan of them. Ours, we really focus on the formulation, but ultimately like, it's, I'm not, it's, it's a qualitative distinction. We do have one quantitative distinction, which is that we sell a six milligram nicotine gum, which Nicorette actually sells a, a six milligram in Australia. And I was buying it on eBay and importing it. And it was amazing. But for some reason, probably the regulatory burden, they never got it approved in the United States. And so it's, it's my belief that, that like it's a better product and it should be in the United States, even though it'd be a competitor. So I guess keep it out of here. But, um, I, I think if we're, if I'm just like the president of the United States and I'm trying to just make people healthy, I would definitely get that product rolled out in, in America. Um, it was also dirt cheap on eBay for some reason, because of like the transaction and, uh, different costs. But anyway, so, so nicotine gums, the first thing, and then, uh, pouches and specifically these breaker product that, uh, has a capsule inside. So the number one product that we found that the problem that we found with other pouches, uh, was that they dried your mouth out because if you look at the lineage of nicotine pouches and tobacco pouches, it stall, it starts with just ground up tobacco leaf. Like people would just take the tobacco leaf off the plant, grind it up in mortar and pestle, and then take it and stuff it in their lip. And this, you might know as dip chewing tobacco. You see the baseball players back in the day, chewing it up, spitting the spit is brown. You might have seen like the frat guy in the basement of the house with the Gatorade bottle that's filled with the brown spit. It's disgusting. It's not just disgusting. It also has cancer causing nitrosamines and carcinogens in there. Like it's a, it's a dangerous product and you can get mouth cancer from that. Um, but there was a few, there were a few innovations in the space. Uh, one of the first was like snooze pouches, which were, uh, the, the, the actual, uh, loose leaf chewing tobacco is now wrapped in a, uh, in a pouch. And so, uh, general snooze by Swedish match is a product. The, 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 these are very popular. And so it's more convenient. It doesn't create as much like mess in your mouth. Like the particles just don't go everywhere. So people like that, that was getting bigger, but again, you still have tobacco in there. Not good. Then in 2014, um, Swedish match released Zin which is a white nicotine pouch, meaning that there's no tobacco inside, which means they've removed all the, all the tobacco and it just contains nicotine and some flavorings and some, you know, filler basically. Uh, and, uh, that product has done phenomenally well. The Swedish match was doing, I think 2 billion in revenue and got acquired for 16 billion. So that gives you kind of an idea of the scale of this thing. Uh, and, and, and this was a year or two ago. So you know, like eight years into this business, Swedish Match has been running for decades, but um, but Zin was like really moving the stock because it was growing so fast. So anyone who was trading Swedish Match stock was always focused on the the Zin performance, and a lot of the retail traders were really pissed when they got bought by Philip Morris because they wanted to continue owning Zin as like a pure play product. 
uh, and now they have to buy like Philip Morris stock and it's like this bigger thing. So it's, it, it's, it's more complicated. Um, but the beauty of Zinn was that they took the tobacco out of the pouch. So now you don't have to deal with all that. If you don't want tobacco in your mouth, you just want the nicotine. Zinn offers that. Great. Um, but what we found was that personally, I didn't like that the product seemed to dry my mouth out. And this was true for kind of everything in the, in, in the category. And so we focused on finding ways to deliver more moisture into the pouch. And so we do that in a number of ways, but the Breakers product has an actual capsule with liquid inside that dissolves and then moistens your mouth, moistens the pouch and releases more flavor and just makes it a better experience. Um, and so that's kind of like the, the overview. We sell mostly online, but heavy retail push uh, into all sorts of retail chains. And that's kind of the, the product mix. And because of the regulatory, there isn't a lot in the product pipeline. We're really just focused on better marketing, better branding, better distribution right now. We have some cool ideas for stuff, but any new product is going to be years of waiting, years of working with the FDA and millions of dollars of, of investment to get it to, to market. And, th and that was the next thing I wanted to talk about is distribution. Because like you were saying, you know, Zinn, for example, if they're selling $2 billion, they have to have like really solid distribution. Yep. And I know just from anecdotal things, it's like I walk into a gas station, I walk into a convenience store, you see like the the Zinn tins like right on right on the counter. So how do you guys approach, you know, starting D2C, but like you said, you're expanding into retail. What's your retail play? How do you think about it? How do you scale it? Yeah. I mean, the benefit of, of D2C is that you do get a lot of data about your customers. And so you know where the product's playing well. Um, for us, like the the Northwest is particular, we're particularly punching above our, our weight class there. And then also like the major cities, like Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York. And I think a lot of that has to do with like taxes. And then um, the Northwest has a whole bunch of other factors. You know, I think it's generally health conscious crowd outdoorsy types, not wanting to like smoke all day. <laughs> um, but, uh, the, the, I mean, the thing that we found, I mean, obviously like, there's no substitute for just having like a, a really, really great sales rep who is willing to call, knock on doors, follow up, really educate the, the, the customer and the store owner about the value of the product, why they should take a shot on this, send some free product, try some things out, educate them. Um, it has helped when we, when we find that um, our D2C products, our D2C efforts translate into retail. So they've heard about us on a podcast, even though that podcast had a coupon code and we were expecting a customer to buy directly, a retail owner heard about it because they listen to podcasts too. And they're like, wait a minute, like this is a cool product. I should try this. Or a lot of times they'll, they'll just be buying the product or someone who works for them will be buying the product. They'll see it and they're like, hey, if you're buying this independently and ordering it online, like maybe we should be carrying this in the store and then they'll give it a try. Um, there are a bunch of other, you know, it's, hacks, but yeah, it's interesting too, how like, you know, most brands are looking at creator distribution, like TikTok influencers, et cetera, as like an instant attribution play. However, it can drive massive awareness for retail adoption yep. because it just drives awareness. Then people go to their local gas station and ask if they have Lucy. I mean, this is how Zinn, um, also really took off even jewel. Um, it wasn't like a direct placement. It was just on every video. Yeah. Um, and so re re it flips the script where then retailers are requesting from you um, to carry your product. Yes, uh, that's half true. I think that's kind of true for Jewel. I think they did a great job of like, you know, marketing and branding the product. And obviously the folks at Zen did a great job too. But it is important to remember that, that Zen was created by Swedish Match. They already had distribution into... You know, hundreds of thousands of stores, tens of th tens of thousands of stores through the general snooze product, which is the exact same dimensions, by the way, like it's a can of pouches. It just happens to be a brown pouch instead of a white pouch. And so you can imagine that it's easier when you have a sales force to be like, put this everywhere. And then the customer becomes aware. And then the viral videos start happening, as opposed to the other way around. If you're a startup, you don't really have that option unless your dad right. runs, you know, some major distribution hub or something. 7-Eleven. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, if, your dad, if your dad runs 7-Eleven, like different strategy for you. Yeah. But for everyone else, it's like, yeah, go, yeah, go <laughs> with the creators, get popular, figure out the D2C play, and then use that as to accelerate into retail. So, so John, I know you went on a side quest to become a YouTube creator. You now have over 300,000 subscribers. Um, so you yourself are becoming a creator. 
I'm curious, um, how does that play into the brand you're building? And how do you look at creator distribution overall? Are you involved with more creators in the brand? Um, is that even um, in the mix? Yeah, I mean, it helps a ton. Um, obviously, uh, once you hit a certain scale on as a creator, you kind of can meet any other creator who's at a similar scale, which has been very helpful in terms of finding people who, who do speak to that audience. My content's very business focused, um, but we've been able to meet a lot of content, content creators that are very um, like lifestyle, health, wellness, you know, even, even just straight up tobacco and nicotine influencers um, who are like perfect. Um, so it's been helpful there. Obviously it's helpful to see the other side of the business and understand like, okay, what, what do they really want? Like what, what actually moves the needle for these folks? So that's been good. Um, and then, yeah, just generally in terms of like hiring partnerships, it just everything like how being a known quantity, like if somebody says, okay, do I want to do business with this new brand? And then they look me up and they see me on this podcast and they see my content and they see that I'm a real person and I, and and I, I, I've been known quantity. I, they know my whole history is out there. Uh, it's just added credibility. And so it opens, opens doors, you get more intros, all these different things like all come together for sure. Cool. And John, as we wrap up here, what's your involvement with, uh, with Founders Fund as, as an EIR? Like what, what are you, what are you working on? What excites you? I, clearly this isn't your first rodeo in terms of companies. You're, you've built a couple of different companies, you're building your business as a creator and, and you're doing some other stuff. So what, what does that look like for you? Yeah. I mean, Founders Fund is a, is a fascinating place. It's a, it's an incredible group of folks. It's a very small, tight knit firm. Um, they have not like hyperscaled the staff, which has been cool because even as an EIR, I've met basically everyone. Um, and, uh, yeah, my, my, my role is, yeah, just to continue doing what I'm doing. Basically, I make a lot of YouTube content. I'm, tr I'm, I'm building out um, like a real process for making really high budget looking documentaries about new startups and new companies. So I'll go to a company uh, that's building something. I was at a factory yesterday. They're building like a crazy machine shop. And I walk around the floor with the CEO. I interviewed all the team members. I cut it all together make it really, really great. And then that helps them recruit employees, potentially get customers, all these different things. And so, um, figuring that out has been, has been a really fun thing. And of course, like, uh, Founders Fund knows a lot of really impressive entrepreneurs that, um, you know, I've, I've known some, but not all, and it's been great to be able to meet people and then, uh, make more content about them and with them. So that's been cool. I love it. Well, um, you know, why don't you shout out to the audience? Where, where can we connect with you? What are your channels? Where are your socials? Where do we find you? Yeah, I'm John Coogan, basically on YouTube and Twitter or X. Uh, don't really do much on Instagram. Feel free to shoot me a DM on 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 Twitter. Um, my email is also on my website, johncoogan.com, if you want to find that. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel. That's like the main place. And then Twitter is kind of where I hang out and have fun with people. Sweet. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, John. Good to be here. Thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.